The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Acts 24, 1 through 27. It's Acts 24, 1 through 27. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned them, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some of the Jews from Asia, well, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that. This is a long passage, and I'm only going to talk really, I'm going to cover all of it, but I'm going to focus in on just kind of the last part of it. But I, I love hearing scripture read during a worship service. And that was all of Acts 24, so it was the whole chapter. And uh, I have to tell you that I had a moment when I was working on this sermon where I kind of had to push myself back from the desk. And, and, and the feeling was this text was making me love Jesus more. And I mentioned that to say this is also a passage that you may look at and think, why in the world is this? in the canon of Holy Scripture. Why a text like this of a court proceeding that's happening where not much is really kind of going on, why does this passage belong in the same canon of Scripture as the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want or our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like, why? And as I was looking at this passage and as I was thinking about it and writing a sermon about it and thinking about you all and us as a congregation, and it made me think of another story in scripture that's very similar to this one. And it's a story that I have just such a tremendous amount of affection for. And it's the story of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler in Mark 10. And in that story, you have a young man who comes to Jesus and he has a question. And he has this question because he's, he's after something. And what he's after is he's trying to cover his bases. And he's been working hard to do that. And he has this question that he asks Jesus. And it's a strange question. Because the question he asks Jesus is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the reason that question's strange is because when it comes to inheritances, it's usually not anything we do. It's who we are. Who we are in relation to the inheritance itself and the one from whom the inheritance comes. And so he asks this question, what do I do? And the reason he asks it is because he's a doer. And some of you are doers. Just give me a list, man. Give me a checklist. I'll populate that checklist. The first five things will be things I already did. So I can take those off right away, get that dopamine hit and keep going, right? The checklist, well, he's a doer and he had done it all. Like he, he was a rich young man. He'd earned money. He'd gained the respect of his friends and colleagues. He lived an upright life. He told Jesus, I keep the law of God, all of it. And yet he was unsettled. And he was unsettled because there was something in him that was still lacking, something pretty important. And that was this guarantee that he could know, that he could know, that he could know that he had eternal life. And he wasn't sure. And so when he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a question under that question. And the question under that question is he's asking Jesus, what must I do to have it all? To have it all. I've taken care of a lot of it, but what do I need to do to have it all? 
and this is what I love about this passage, is I love the way Jesus loves this young man and the way that he answers him. He says to him, essentially, in order for you to have it all, you need to just give everything away. Let it go. Empty yourself. And that rich young man can't. He just can't. It's too expensive, what Jesus is saying to him. And Jesus is loving him with this answer. And the rich young ruler goes away sad because the sacrifice that Jesus was asking for felt so great that he just couldn't do it because he didn't just want eternal life. What he wanted was eternal life plus all of the other things that he had worked so hard to accumulate and put in order. And I love that we don't know what happens with him. He walks away sad, but does he walk away with the hound of heaven on his heels? Is he present at Pentecost among the 2,000 where the tongues of fire come down on the believers? Because he's had some time to think and look at the things that he's accumulated and the order he's tried to put around it and say, that's actually not what I want. I posed the question last week, what do you want God to do for you? This week's question is similar, it's a little bit different. And the question is, what do you ultimately want? What do you ultimately want? And the follow-up question is, can you have it? Can you have what it is that you ultimately want? When an actor talks about getting into the mind of a character, one of the things they will often focus on is what that character wants. What does this character want? What drives them? And then when they understand that, everything that they say in character will be motivated by that desire. Everything that character does will be motivated by that desire. And the crucial other side of that equation is that they won't do anything and they won't say anything that isn't connected to this thing that they want. They're focused on it. Today's text digs into the life of Felix, Governor Felix. And he is a fascinating person and he's not unlike us. He's driven, and he's driven by obtaining what he wants. And what does he want? He wants all of it. He wants all of it, like the rich young ruler. So here's what happens. Paul's been sent to Herod's Praetorium, where Governor Felix is stationed. He's been there for five days, and Felix has sent for people to come and testify against Paul. Five days after he gets there, Ananias, the high priest in Jerusalem, along with several other members of the Sanhedrin, they arrive with their legal counsel, uh, this guy named Tertullus. And when the court convenes, Tertullus steps forward to make the case for the Sanhedrin's argument. And he opens with these customary remarks of flattery, praising effusively Felix's leadership, telling him, oh, great governor, how grateful we all are for your leadership. And these reforms that you've been doing are, are just splendid and they're helpful to all of us. Now, the truth is, 
The relationship between the Jews and the Romans grew increasingly strained the longer Rome occupied the Promised Land, and Felix knew that their praise was empty, and he knew that they knew that he knew their praise was empty. It was theater. But Felix enjoyed it, and the reason he enjoyed it was because even though their praise was empty, this posture of deference had value for him. Why? Because Felix's job, well, Felix's desire, his want, was to be promoted, was to climb. His job was to then maintain peace in troubled times, and if he could do that, it would be a sign of strength in the eyes of those who had the power and authority to promote him. They would look at him and they would say, this is the kind of guy we need in this place that's more important than this and more fragile than this and more visible. And so even if the Sanhedrin didn't truly appreciate Felix's leadership, he received their willingness to humble themselves in front of him and to speak duplicitously about their affection for his you know, projects that he's done and to flatter him publicly. And so that happens, and Tertullus then says, and we know your time is precious, Governor. We don't wish to detain you any longer than necessary, so if you'll allow me just few moments, um, we'll just explain what's going on here with this person. And he points to Paul, and he said, this man is a plague. He infects people's minds. They have conversations with him, and their lives change. He stirs up riots among the Jews, and he caused the riot that Lysias had to shut down, which is why he's here with you right now. And then he lays out three charges against Paul. The first is, Paul is a threat to Roman peace. Now this is where Felix would have looked at them and said, remember the flattery that you were just giving me? I'm starting to forget about that. And the reason he would say that is because when they say to Felix, this guy is a threat against Roman peace, they're forcing him to have to do something about it. Because what he can't do is hear an accusation of somebody who's a threat to Roman peace and wave it off. Because that won't look good. He's a threat to Roman peace. Second charge, he is a Christian. And the third charge is he attempted to defile the temple. So he sits down and then governor lets Paul speak and Paul defends himself and he rises and he addresses the governor and what does he do? He says, knowing you have judged this nation with wisdom and prudence this many years, I happily make my defense to you, your excellency. He plays the game too. He gets in on the flattery. He understands. Look, there's something I want to say that I want you to hear. In order for that to happen, there's other stuff I have to say. I get that that's part of the deal. And so he says it, and he flatters him. And then he says, look, if you ask around, I was here in Caesarea two weeks ago. And then I went to Jerusalem, and I wasn't there long. I wasn't there. I was only there a week and a half, two weeks. It wasn't enough time to build up a coalition, to build up a, you know, an army to take this place down. I didn't desecrate the temple. I never got in arguments with people. You can ask around, and you'll find out that's the case. The reason I was there was I heard there was a famine. And as I've been traveling around Asia Minor, I've been collecting an offering, and I was bringing this to provide relief for the famine. And then he said, the reason the Sanhedrin got so angry with me is because when I was teaching and I was talking, 
I started talking about the resurrection of the dead. And within the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees argue over that point, and they started arguing with each other, and they took it out on me. I'm here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Felix listening to this, and he's sizing it up, and he knows there's, there's no like criminal case here as far as Rome is concerned. There's no basis for any legal action. He can see plainly Paul is not a threat to what's happening in Rome. And then our text reveals to us this delicious little nugget that Felix was actually rather familiar with Christianity. And the reason he was was because there were Christians in Caesarea. And he knew them. He'd encountered them. He knew them by reputation. And so he knew Christians, and he also knew very well the political game that the Sanhedrin was trying to play. And so he wants to release Paul. He wants to be rid of the whole thing, but he also knows that he can't just do that. And the reason he can't just do that is because he wants to preserve the respect, or at least the silence, of these people he governs who have the power to make him look like a weak leader in the eyes of people who could promote him. And so here he is, a person who's stuck. Why is he stuck? Because there's something he wants. What does he want? He wants more. He wants more. And if this situation goes poorly, he has a lot to lose. And so what he decides to do is the old decision to make a decision later. He he says, I'm going to put this thing off until Lysias comes and we can confer. And then he puts Paul in prison But it's kind of like Club Med, it's minimum security prison. He says, you can bring your friends, friends can visit, they can bring you things, they can pray with you, take care of any needs that might arise, but you can't leave. So it's kind of like house arrest. But here's where things start to get really interesting for me. And where I see the love of Jesus starting to shine through in a passage like this, because of how he's caring for us in this room by this text being in front of us. Not too many days after Paul is put in house arrest, he is surprised to learn that Felix and his wife, Drusilla, want him to come talk to them. And what do they want to talk about? Christianity. They want to talk to Paul about his faith. And so Paul goes... And what he does is he speaks to them with the same conviction and authority that he spoke everywhere else. He didn't dumb it down. He didn't preach a different gospel. He didn't act like, well, you know, it's, uh, and he did not effusively flatter the governor. Instead, what did he do? He started talking about how the gospel is directly connected to justice. And in the gospel, is a call for us to be mindful of our self-control and our appetites. Out of the gate, he's talking to this governor who just wants more about advocacy and appetites, relevant matters to power-hungry people. And then he talks about judgment. There's this coming judgment. And when he starts talking about the judgment of the Lord... Drusilla and Felix feel the weight of what it is that Paul's saying, so much so that Felix stops the conversation. 
And he says, listen, this conversation is over for now. I'll come back and talk to you more, but we're done for now. Why did Felix shut the conversation down? He's the rich young ruler. He shuts the conversation down because Paul is telling him, listen, the gospel that I proclaim, that I believe, that Jesus, that you're asking me about, following him, following the way, well, there are ethical implications to this. It actually calls for a response from you. Repentance of sin. Devotion to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not just some abstract philosophical idea to play around with theoretically. It will cost you something. How much will it cost you? Everything. This is a good time to dig in to Felix's past a little bit. He's an historical character. We know some things about him. Things that are outside of the canon of Scripture. And what we know is that when Felix was a child, he was a slave. He had a brother who was older than him, also a slave. And somehow Felix's older brother was released from slavery and given a position of power, of government. And one of the things he did in this position of authority and power is he lifted his little brother out of slavery and also gave him a position of power, advocated for him. But Felix never stopped thinking like a slave. In fact, his reputation, the tagline for him is he was a king who always acted as a slave. What does that mean? He never shed the feeling of being a slave. He responded with cruelty to people. He was always looking over his shoulder. He took bribes. Even in this text, you see him asking. He plotted the assassinations of his rivals. Felix was a man who had no inner peace. Why? Because he looked at his situation in life and he said, this thing is fragile. And it can come crashing down at any moment with one bad decision. And you may be in your chair right now thinking, I live my life like that. That I'm one or two bad decisions or bad things happening from all of this just caving in on itself. And all of the things that I've worked so hard to gain and get my arms around could just be lost in a second. And so you live in a way where you're just protecting and protecting and protecting and trying to get out of the fragility that you're in into something that in your mind you would say that would be stable, that would be secure. And you start moving the pieces around the board for that. Felix's wife, Drusilla, was royalty. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. She was Jewish. When she was a small girl, about 10 or 11 years old, she was betrothed to a crown prince in Asia Minor, and that wedding never happened, and the reason it didn't was because that crown prince refused to convert to Judaism. And so, when she was in her early teens, 12 or 13, her brother gave her as a bride to the king of Emesa, 
which is a Syrian state. So it's like a small little territory, a king who was a king of a small little place, but he didn't have a lot of power and he didn't have a lot of notoriety. But somehow Felix saw her, he met her, and he pursued her. And he persuaded her to leave her marriage to this king and become his third wife. Now, as I've given you that picture, do you see them? Do you see this picture of Felix and Drusilla? People who are playing the angles the best that they can and trying to keep things afloat. They're trying to have it all. They're trying to keep it all. But it is complicated. And it is always in jeopardy. Drusilla was interested in Christianity. It had roots in her faith. And Felix is with her, and he's interested in Drusilla. But he's hearing what Paul's saying, and he's counting the cost. And he's saying, well, I don't know if I can afford that. But he's also thinking, Paul, I remember you talking about this collection all this money you brought. And he's wondering if there's any of that left for him. And then the bombshell drops in the passage. Felix put him in prison and kept him there for two years. For two years, he has Paul in this place where they're visiting and they're talking about the faith. Two years. He visits him many times and they talk about the faith. But Felix is continually hoping for Paul to just offer him a bribe. He's saying to Paul, I'm interested in hearing you uh, enjoy our chats. There's a way for you to not be here anymore. And Paul never takes the bait. And instead, what happens is these two men get to know each other over the course of two years by seeing each other regularly. So I want you to think about somebody, a friend in your life that you've known for two years or less, that you would say, that's a good friend of mine. It's somebody that you've, these friendships, a lot can happen in two years of friendship. And Felix, along the way, is giving Paul these kind of vague assurances. Look, your case is in process. It's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, right? But then the time comes for Felix to yield his post to the incoming governor, Festus, and Felix, the rich young ruler, freezes. He freezes because what he wants is more. And he desires to remain on good terms with the Jewish leadership And his desire to stay on good terms with them prevails when it's time for him to leave. And so he leaves Paul in prison for Festus to deal with. This would be a good opportunity to talk about why Felix left Caesarea. Was he promoted? No. The reason Felix left Caesarea was because he was recalled from his office. Why was he recalled from his office? 
because there was an outbreak of violence between Jewish and Gentile inhabitants in Caesarea where he governed, and his response was to send in troops who struck down a lot of the Jewish leadership, and it was a bloodbath. Why? Because Felix was a king who thought like a slave and reacted this way when anything that he was supposed to be in control over was destabilized. And so he had this reaction of creating this war zone in the place where he was, and Rome summoned him. And they summoned him possibly to execute him. And do you know what happened? His older brother advocated for him. He advocated for him so that he would be spared. And then do you know what happened? No one does. Because he just kind of drops off the face of the earth with the only historical note remaining being that historians speculate that he died of tuberculosis. Now, I'm telling you a story. When we look at this story from the vantage point of Felix, this is a story about money. It's a story about comfort. It's a story about power. Felix wants it all. He is the rich young ruler trying to figure out how to have it all. By keeping Paul in his prison, it's his way, it's like he's keeping Jesus in a box on his desk for two years. And he opens it to peek inside. He's curious. He's probably even comforted by his proximity to the eternal. But what he doesn't do is accept the cost. Instead, he just keeps it there. Now I have to ask you, are you Felix? Are you Felix? Like the rich young ruler, the question isn't really what must I do to inherit eternal life, it's what must I do to have everything? and to not lose it, because I can't handle losing it. And you may hear me say, are you Felix, and think, he's talking to maybe one or two people in the room who may be on the verge of becoming Christians but haven't yet, and you've kept Jesus kind of on a box, and you've been curious, but you've also kept your distance, and yeah. But I'm also talking to all of us, because even if you've been a Christian for decades, Are there seasons, and are you in one now, where your faith is essentially something that you keep in a box on your desk, but what you're really driven by in life is wealth and comfort and control and reputation? And when that is what you're driven by in life, you are the rich young ruler, and you may say, I'm not young, but here's the thing. Is every man in this room has some form of an insecure boy in their heart. And every woman in this room has some version of a fearful young girl in their hearts, afraid that this whole thing is just going to fall apart if we don't keep it together. 
Felix is concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about upward mobility, money. He's curious about the gospel Paul proclaims, but he keeps his distance because he can't afford it. And then his story ends, and it is pitiful, and it is sad. Because he is the picture of what Jesus was talking about when he asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Because here's the thing, you can be as dissatisfied as a millionaire as someone who is bankrupt. This world can hand you much of the best that it has to offer materially, and you may likely find that that world is just as hollow as if you had nothing. But Paul, when he's talking to Felix about faith, he's not talking to Felix about a faith Felix can't have. He's talking about the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Felix. Take and see. The free offer of the gospel extends to all of us. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Answer, be a child of God. What must I do to become a child of God? Trust in the mercy and grace of Christ to atone for your sins and reconcile you to your maker. What will that cost you? Everything. And also, Jesus paid it all. What's the alternative? Well, for Felix, the alternative was a life of quiet desperation, a life of continual competition, a life of perpetual distrust, working all the angles he could to try to get ahead, getting passed over for promotions, and eventually fading into the shadows of history only to be remembered for the opportunities he missed rather than the ones he took. Let's pray. Father, we relate to Felix and to the rich young ruler because we believe things that aren't true about how this world works. One of them being that our place in it is exceedingly fragile if we don't hold it all together. And you have told us that's not how we have to live. We can trust in you. We can believe that you have good things for us and that every good thing that you've started in our life, you will bring to completion. That you are faithful that you are just, that you are merciful, that we are robed in the righteousness of Christ, that our sin is counted no more when our faith is in you. And yet, Lord, we can be functional atheists in the way that we go through this world, thinking that it somehow rests on us to make sure that the whole thing doesn't come falling apart. And when that's the case, Lord, we react 
and we scheme. Help us to see you. Help us to see your invitation to trust and believe. And we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace and your kindness. Amen.